So we're going to be working our way through the next section of the Gospel of Luke, focusing in on the fingerprints of Jesus. What do we mean by that? Well, your fingerprints are your kind of unique identity markers. You might say, man, that person had his fingerprints all over that deal at work or all over that deal at the house or in the neighborhood, right? It's, it's kind of the work of their life. Last week, we saw that Jesus took on flesh for us and for our salvation. And as we focus in, as Dr. Luke takes us into more of Jesus' life, we see really what that means. What does it mean that he came for us and for our salvation? We get to see his fingerprints at work. And so I just want to give you a little vision for this next six or seven weeks. We're going to be letting the gospel go deep within us in this time. I want to invite you just to kind of prepare your heart and prepare your mind for this to be a time of transformation, for this to be a time of personal healing and personal breakthrough, of really uh, letting yourself be saturated with the goodness of the gospel of Jesus, letting your relationships and the way you think about life be shaped by the goodness of who he is, right? And after we've gone deep, after we're just growing and being transformed by the gospel, after Easter, we're going to continue in Luke, but we're going to go wide with the gospel. We're going to start looking at as transformed people, how do we transform cities? We're going to let Jesus' message go deep within us and then work its way out so that it goes wide through us. So that'll be after Easter, but for the next six, seven weeks, we're going to be focused right here in Luke chapter 3 and Luke chapter 4, and that's where I want to invite you to turn today. We're going to start in Luke 3, 21. Man, this is exciting. So as you get in your Bible uh, uh, there, we started with a question, right? What's your favorite movie? And I want you to think today like a movie producer. I want you to think like a movie critic, a film writer, like, like that side of your brain. A few weeks ago, we talked about science and faith, and we all got out our pocket protectors, you know, and our, our calculators and our Bunsen burners and our PC computers, right? Today, I want you to put those down, and I want you to get out your Mac products. I want you to go to your favorite coffee shop. We're going to go to some hipster coffee shop, drink coffee, talk about movies, right? Think in that side of your brain. That's what we're going to need today to understand where Luke is taking us. So a little bit of background. There are a number of different ways to study the Bible, right? There's one way that's called systematic theology. Um, this is when you kind of take an idea or a topic like peace, and you look up every verse in the Bible about peace. You kind of put them in a list. You put them in order. I want to know what the Bible says about peace, or what does the Bible say about being a husband, or what does the Bible say about God's love or fear, right? We're kind of making a system of understanding different words and concepts within the Scripture. It's called systematic theology. If you buy, if you go on Amazon, you Google or Amazon, I guess, systematic theology, you'll see the books for that are really big because they've got lots of words and definitions and systems around them. It's a very helpful uh, type of theology. It's impacted and blessed me. I can't tell you how many times I've been in seasons where I'm like, I need to know what the Word of God says about this particular issue, and I'll study that, and I encourage you to pursue systematic theology. Well, there's a second way of looking at the Bible called historical theology. And what this does is you say, okay, I'm going to look at these concepts, but I'm going to look at them in the way to understand how has the church 
throughout the, history, throughout the centuries understood these different ideas. So you say, well, what did the early church believe about this issue? Maybe communion. What did the early church believe about communion? What did uh, Augustine believe about communion or Tertullian? Or what did the reformers believe, like John Calvin and Martin Luther? What did John Wesley believe? What, you know, you're kind of tracing through time how the church has interpreted different scriptures. That's historical theology. We did a little bit of that last week when we looked at the Nicene Creed. Again, wonderful way, really important way to study the Bible. It's really crucial. Third way of studying the Bible is what I call devotional theology. And that's, you might have seen a devotional kind of on your YouVersion Bible app, or you might have bought one in a store or online, where someone has taken some scriptures and they put them together, and they're meant to encourage you and inspire you and edify you to build you up, right? So the focus is not kind of making a system for every verse on peace, or it's not a history for kind of how the church understood us through centuries. It's how does this impact me? And it's kind of more of a meditative type of way of studying the Bible. Again, wonderful way to study the Bible. Have benefited from that so much. But today I want to share with you a fourth way of studying the Bible that I find most people don't know about, but in my life, it has been unbelievable what this approach to Scripture has helped the Bible just come alive in my own heart, come alive in my own life, turned it from kind of, okay, here's a book, and I know it's good to read, to wow, this is amazing, and I want to help you with that, and you're going to need this way of understanding the scripture to understand what Luke is talking about today. If we don't get this, you're going to read the stories we have for today, and you're going to be like, I have no idea uh, what that means or why is that happening, okay? So this is, this is called biblical theology. Now, it's not called biblical theology because it's any more biblical than the other ways, but what it means is it's the way of looking at the Bible, of tracing the storyline of scripture from beginning to to end, or approaching the Bible like it's a movie, a true movie, where you're looking at scenes and character development and drama and rising action and falls and climaxes and consummation and all of these things, right? The elements of a story. What's interesting is our brains are hardwired for story. Our brains are hardwired to think in story form. So for many of us, this will be the easiest way to really grasp what the scriptures are teaching. I'm excited to share it with you today. Now, a couple challenges if you're new to the Bible to get this is realizing kind of how the Bible was put together. This Bible is actually made up of 66 distinct books or letters that did not originate, like the Bible did not drop from heaven like this. I lost my place, that'll be problematic, but... uh, (laughs) Didn't just drop from heaven and some leprechaun found it under a stone, right? And, oh, wow, we've got it all put together. No, that's not how the Bible was formed. We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? It was formed as distinct letters or books in various communities over hundreds and even thousands of years, formed by different people. You've got shepherds and you've got kings. You've got doctors. You've got religious leaders. You've got all kinds of people writing these inspired scriptures. So in your town, at your church, you might have had the book of Philippians. And in another town, they might have had the book of Romans, right? 
and you're like, man, I've got to go to these towns over here to go read and hear about, you know, God's heart for the Romans, right? It was separated. You might have had the book of Daniel, but not the book of Genesis or the other way around, right? So along the way, the, the church leader said, hey, these are divinely inspired scriptures. We're going to kind of compile them so you don't have to drive or ride your camel kind of all over the countryside, gathering up to understand God's word, the history of God's interaction with his people, right? So the Bible is put together. So if you have a, a paper copy, if you still use paper books, the other confusing part about the Bible is within those 66 books, it's organized into two sections, Old Testament, New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, right, you need to know that. And just a rule of thumb, Old Testament is before Jesus. New Testament is life of Jesus and after. That kind of divides the scriptures. And then within those divisions, the challenge is these distinct books are not grouped in chronological order. So you can read one book and it actually happened before the other book. And you're like, how in the world do I follow along this storyline? They're grouped by genre. So again, thinking movies, if you go on Amazon Prime or if you remember back to the days when we went to a movie kind of rental company like Blockbuster, you realize movies are not grouped chronologically there. They're grouped in genres, right? So you've got comedy and you've got drama and you've got documentaries and you've got horror movies and they're, they're grouped by genre. Well, the books of Scripture are grouped the same way, okay? So you have epistles or letters. Those were letters to the churches, and they're grouped together. You have apocalyptic literature, literature, uh, writings about the end times, like the book of Revelation that comes at the end of the New Testament. You have the Gospels. There are more biographies and histories of the life of Jesus. You have prophetic books, like the book of Isaiah. If you read that, if you ever tried to read Isaiah or Ezekiel, you realize, whoa, this is very different than how the Apostle Paul writes. Like the prophetic books are talking about imagery and metaphor and visions and dreams and all this stuff. And the Apostle Paul writing, writing the letters is very straightforward, lining things out, different genres. There's wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs. If you read that, you're going to get wise. It's filled with wise sayings, kind of, yeah, just wise sayings. So there's all these different types of genres, and the books of the Bible are grouped together by genre. So this proves challenging for most of us when we start talking about the storyline, because it's like, I get the idea of story, I get the idea of an overarching narrative, but if I read this on my own, how do I know what comes first and how they work together, right? So if you want to pursue this, if after today you're like, man, I, this, this is scratching an itch that I have, I want to encourage you to buy a study Bible. It'll help you. Uh, figure these things out or go to Bible Gateway or Blue Letter Bible or one of those sites, and it will help you kind of understand the order or the history with which these books speak of, okay? What I want to do for you today, though, is take you to the end of the story. So, right, you think classic definition of a story, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. I'm going to take you to the end of the story, the end of the movie, the end of human history, Right, And we need to understand this, and we're going to look at the beginning as well to really catch what Luke is sharing with us about Jesus today. So I want you to kind of keep a finger in Luke 3, and I want you to turn to Revelation 21, or Revelation 7, sorry. This is the back of the Bible. This is the end of history. 
right? So Christians believe, right, that time is not just kind of going about haphazardly like a naturalist believe where there's no meaning and there's no purpose and it's just kind of, I don't know, it's just going wherever. There's no point. We don't believe like Eastern uh, religions believe where time is secular or circular, uh, cyclical, where it just kind of starts uh, beginning, middle, end, beginning, middle, end, beginning, middle, end, every new beginning is some other beginning's end. We don't believe that. We believe that time is headed to a distinct end, that God is moving history toward a desired purpose. And we're going to read about it today. Revelation 7, verse 9 says this. This is the Apostle John, and he's talking about the end of human history, the consummation of the Bible. It says this, After this I look, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now he's describing the people that are going to be there, where history is headed. And what I want you to note is that he points out that there are going to be people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, there's going to be a lot of people there, a great multitude, right, in this redeemed community, this family that God is building. And so I want you, again, like a movie producer, I want you to imagine in your mind the different cultures of the world, the different skin tones, the different dress styles, the different uh, languages and, and musical kind of genres, I want you to imagine that in your mind. Just imagine a great multitude of people from every tribe and every tongue and every language and every nation, this great diversity there gathered around the throne. So in the midst of this great diversity, there's unity over the song that's being sung. There is one thing that has captured the heart's and the minds and the songs of these people, and it's the glory of Jesus. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So in the midst of all this diversity, there's this unity of people that have just been undone by the goodness of God so much so they're just singing and they're praising God. That's the description of the family of God, the family that God is building. When he started with Adam and Eve, what he had in mind in the end, That's where history is going. So a thing to note here, right? Sometimes it says, sometimes Christianity is criticized as being a racist religion. And you might see at kind of white supremacist movements, they've got little Bible verse references written on signs. Now, I want to let you know, you've actually read the book. You've actually read where things are going. If we go back to that scripture, take note, racists are not going to like heaven right? Take note of that. Like, there's no like, oh, well, this race is better than everybody else. No, it's like, there's a whole lot of diversity there, right? So what we see is that in God's mind, man, he's just building this beautiful family. Like, if you think the Olympic opening ceremonies with the nations coming out are cool, wait till you see this family. It's going to be amazing, right? So then John moves from describing the family to describing the environment that's happening around them. So we're going to fast forward to Revelation 21, verse 1. And he says this, 
speaking about the environment. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So again, I don't want you to think in a language of precision. I want you to think like a movie director and I want you to think what is more beautiful that we could describe something as a bride adorned for a husband, right? You think about the wedding day. All this money has been spent on the dress and the makeup and the hair and the jewelry, and they've worked out for six months or nine months getting ready for this moment. It's beautiful. Like if you go to weddings, what you do, all eyes are on the bride. Then you're out of the corner of your eye, you're trying to watch the groom because he's going to be crying. It's just amazing. And John is saying, around this family, there's this city that the only words used to describe it that could fit it is like a bride adorned for a husband. It's beautiful. I want you to think about your favorite city. For my wife and I, our favorite place that we've ever been, we traveled a fair amount, our favorite place are some of the cities in Spain. Why? It's so laid back there. Like things don't get going like 10 in the morning. It's still like, ah, things are just getting started. Like they're not in a rush. And you go out at one in the morning and it's like things are just getting going. Like people are just out. They're just kind of starting their day. If you ever spent time in Spain, you know what I'm talking about. There's just this laid backness that I love, right? And within the big city and the life of the big city and the benefits of the big city, there's all these green spaces, these parks. So it doesn't feel like a concrete jungle. It feels like, man, you can be have the benefits of the big city, but you can go to these parks, these green spaces, and you could just spend an afternoon there. The climate is beautiful, right? And I'm not talking just like a little bit of, of green area. Like I tried to run around one of these parks, and I'm slow, granted, but it took me 40 minutes to run around. So we're talking like a big area of just nature. It's an amazing city. What's your favorite city? What's your favorite city? John's describing this new city. And he's saying, it's so beautiful. It's so amazing. It's, I don't know, it's like a a bride adorned for her husband. And then he goes on to say, he said uh, in verse three, he said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. So what do we notice here? Within this new family, within this beautiful city, God himself is dwelling there. He is with his people. He'll be a God to them, and they will be his people. God is there. God is known and cherished and enjoyed. Now notice what's not there. There's no more crying, there's no more mourning, there's no more pain, there's no more uh, school shootings, there's no more fear over, man, my kids are going off to school today, are they going to be safe? There's no more police officers that are killed in the line of duty like we had here in Dallas last week. There's no more, uh, blanked on the gentleman's name, but the Michigan State doctor that was sexually abusing the, the gymnast, there's no more of that. It's gone, healed, restored. That's not there. It's a new place. Verse 10, 
John backs up a little bit. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. That's really cool. If you've ever been to Colorado and like you're in the city and you look up to the mountain, and it's just beautiful, right? He carried me to the high mountain, showed me the holy city, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So just imagine again the beauty of the city being like a, a jewel, being adorned, just being beautiful. 22. I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God and the, uh, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So God is there, and it's just glorious, so much so that it's a city of prosperity. It's a place where the kings of the earth are bringing their glory into the city, it's a city of wisdom, it's light by which the nations walk, and its gates will never be shut by day. Think about that. Think about never having to lock your doors again. Never having to lock the doors to your car, never having to worry about security issues. Again, the gates are wide open. It's a safe place. Verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, and nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's a place of purity. It's a place of holiness. It's not a place where people uh, do evil and vile things to one another. It's a pure place. Man, that sounds like an incredible place to be. That sounds like an incredible family to be a part of. That is where history is headed. So why don't we see that today? Why is the world that we see so different from the world that the Bible says this is where things are going? Why with all of our technology and all of our advancement and all of kind of our, our different power, why is the world broken? It's so obvious that it's broken. Why is that? Why do you think? Well, to understand the Bible's uh, kind of answer to that, we got to move from the end of the story to the beginning, right? So flip to the other side of your Bible. We're going to Genesis chapter 1, okay? And you're going to need both of these things to understand where Luke is going today. Beginning of the story, God creates the world. He creates everything in it. In fact, it said that there were waters over the world, that the Spirit of God was there, and then this creation is happening, and he creates Adam and Eve, mankind. He brings them out of the dust of the earth, and this is what he said. God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. Let's let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, right? So God is creating and he creates mankind in the image of God that we're made to be the image bearers. We're made to be like little kings and we're given this mission to cultivate the earth that God had given to them, cultivate the garden and cause it to flourish, that this beginning would lead to this end that we just looked at at the end of the book. That's the mission. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. So the blessing of God is on Adam and Eve, right? So then what happened? In the freedom that God gave them, they chose not to honor God, not to look to him as king and creator. They chose to say, hey, 
We're going to be our own kings. We're going to be our own creators. We don't want to live in the image of you. We want to live in the image of whatever we think, and we want to create the world. We want to cultivate the world, not under your leadership, but under our own leadership, right? And they ate of the forbidden fruit. And when they did that, when they turned from God, just like every choice has consequences, there were consequences that came from their choices, right? And sin enters the world. And it's not just the breaking of a rule. You might have heard that. No, no, no. This is far more treacherous than that. This is like a cancer that infects them. And it breaks down their relationship with God. Things are are broken with God. It breaks their relationship with one another. And just like the parents, uh, just like the choices of parents never stick with just them, but they impact another generation, it impacted their kids. And their kids, you see one killing another, and as the story unfolds, you see this plague and this cancer of sin begin to infect the whole world, such so that you read about the flood with Noah, and like the earth itself is disintegrating and coming apart, and floodwaters are going everywhere, and it's just, it's destroying the world. It's unraveling the world. Sin is unraveling the world. If you think again, like a 3D printer, and you've got this image Adam and Eve, they're supposed to be in the image of God and they're getting printed and then something happens and like the, 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 they're broken and they're marred and they're mangled and they're not who God created them to be. And we look at the world around us and you see the fruit of their choices and you see us born into that family line, into that same way of living. That's the Bible's answer for why is the world that we live in so broken? So we see the beginning, and we see the potential, but we also see the problem. And we've seen the end, and we see where history is going. So how do we get from such a broken world to this incredible place? How do we get there? That's where Luke takes us today, and that's where we're going to spend the next uh, seven weeks or so. So now flip back to Luke 3, and we're going to pick up the story. Luke 3, we pick up with John the Baptist, verse 3. We saw him as a baby. Now we see him as a grown adult. He's stepping into the call of God on his life to be a prophet, right? He's in the wilderness and he's prophesying Luke 3, verse 3. And it says this, John went into all the region around Jordan. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. So he's preaching repentance. He's baptizing people, right? And Luke writes, this is to fulfill the prophetic word given through Isaiah. Look at this. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's who John is. Prepare the way of the Lord. This is the content of his message. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What's John saying? I mean, what's, yeah, what's John saying? Again, think like a movie producer, right? So these crooked places that people had fallen on and been broken by were being straightened out. These high places of pride were being brought low. These broken places that were valleys were being raised up. There's restoration that's happening around the coming of the Lord. So John is fulfilling this prophecy, and now we see Jesus step onto the scene. This time, not as a baby, which we read about in Luke 2, but now as a man. We see him stepping into the fullness uh, of, of his calling, right? So notice this. 
in verse 21, Jesus goes out to John the Baptist and says, now when all the people were baptized, Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. Now hold on to that. Why is Jesus being baptized? But Jesus is being baptized and was praying. The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And Luke is introducing to us an idea, a concept. Again, not language of precision, but language of poetry. As movie producers, you're to think, oh, I've heard these elements before. What do we have? We have water, right? And we have the spirit there. And we have this, this person rising out of the water. And God's speaking his blessing over him. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And in these images, we're meant to see, oh, somehow this guy Jesus is connected with Adam. Same creation story about Adam being born and being formed. Now we see Jesus rising out of the water. Where we saw Adam rising out of the water and anointed by the Spirit, now we see Jesus. Where we see Adam blessed, now we see Jesus, right? And you're beginning to see this. You're like, Zach, okay, it seems like a stretch. Just wait, keep going, come with me. So then Luke goes from this scene to a very odd thing, a genealogy. Why in the world would you put a genealogy right here? Like, you would think you'd put a genealogy around the birth of Jesus, maybe a little bit before, maybe a little bit after, not when he's 30 and he's being baptized. Like, why does Luke go there? Again, think like an artist, think like a movie producer. In verse 23, says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi. So he starts this genealogy. It's fairly long. You can look at it on your own. But what I want you to look is where Luke is taking the family tree. The genealogy concludes the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So again, Jesus and Adam connected in some way. We don't know what that way is. Luke's not letting us know that, but you're starting to see parallels. Next scene, right? So just imagine scenes in a movie. Next scene, Jesus goes into the wilderness filled with the Holy Spirit. And I said he goes into the wilderness. This is Luke 3, verse 4, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, who's the only other person that the Bible records, the only other man, the Bible records being tempted by the devil where you get the scene recorded. It's Adam. Again, Adam was tempted around the area of food, around the area of worship, around the area of trusting the goodness of God. Jesus is tempted around the area of food, around the area of worship, around the goodness of God, right? So you're starting to be like, oh, okay, I'm thinking like a movie producer. These guys are connected. Adam, Jesus, is the last Adam, okay? And we're going to need this to understand the rest of the story. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul writes, building out this theme, he says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, speaking about Jesus, became a life-giving spirit, right? The first man, Adam, is a living being. Jesus is a life-giving spirit. Or in Romans 5, 17, for if because of one man's trespass, 
death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So through Adam's choice, the legacy that he left was sin and death. And Paul is saying, Jesus, the last Adam, leaves a new legacy, leaves a new family tree. Where the first Adam left death, Jesus left life. Where the first Adam left destruction, Jesus leaves this reigning in life, receiving grace, this flourishing, right? Jesus steps in as the last Adam, and he is recreating that which got so off, and he is rewriting history or renewing history toward that future that we saw in Revelation 21. Now, Luke is going to go on to describe this in the next chapter, which we're going to spend several weeks on, unpacking what this last Adam, what this new life that he brings, this new work that he's birthing, this life-giving spirit, what it means for you and what it means for me. So we're going to close today uh, by taking communion because the good news is, regardless of where you're from, regardless of your family of origin, what you've been through, how much the last Adam impact or the first Adam impacted you, there's good news today because there's a last Adam. His name is Jesus, and he has power to renew and rewrite your family legacy that you could live after the new way of Jesus, not the old way of Adam. That is very hopeful in a dark and decaying world that we could be under that new family and we could carry that hope to the world around us. So I want to invite you to stand, and we're going to take communion together as we close, just to remember that this is a story we've been invited into. This is not knowledge just for our head, but this is a story that's rewriting and remaking us and the future. So the officiants will be at the four corners of the room. You can come and receive communion uh, when you're ready. Take of the bread and the cup, return to your seat, and let's just enjoy God and respond to him. Jesus, thank you that you're the last Adam. Thank you that you speak a better word over our life than the legacy the first Adam left to us. Thank you that we can receive your grace and this life-giving spirit, this destiny that you have for us to be a part of the new family of Jesus with this new and preferred future, Lord. So we just say, we want it all, God. We receive you today with open hearts as your people, Lord. We're so thankful for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I hope that encouraged you. If this message spoke to you, if God's doing something in your life, I'd love for you to send us an email and let us know. You can do that by just hitting reply on any of the emails you get from us. Wait, what's that? You don't get emails from us. Oh, man, why don't you go to our website and you can sign up for our community newsletter. Once a week, you'll get updates on what's going on, what God is doing in our midst, and we would love for you to be a part. Uh, if you've enjoyed this series of podcasts, love for you to go on iTunes and leave a review. It helps other people find out uh, about this stuff. Love you guys, and we'll see you next week.